0: Hey listeners, it's your host Tashia. Did you know that Hillary Clinton is not the first woman to run for president in the US? Well, you would know that if you had listened to episode 102 of Classical Classroom in which composer Victoria Bond talked about her opera Mrs. President based on the true story of that first woman who ran for president in the US in 1872. Well, Victoria is back again today in the episode that you're about to hear in which we talk a little bit about that opera, but we also talk about Classical music and opera uh, that has been based in true political events. It's a really interesting and educational episode. It's also very timely considering that today, the day that we are recording this, October 24th, is the first day of early voting in the U.S. And uh, also, it's um, timely because Victoria is about to do a performance and live stream of her opera, Mrs. President. Uh, You'll learn more about that in the episode today. So make sure to subscribe to, rate us, and review us on iTunes, and make sure to go vote. All right, enjoy the episode. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz, but when it comes to classical, but I really want to learn. So every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today from the Cat Friendly Radio Foundation studio in New York City is composer and conductor Victoria Bond. This is actually her second time on The Classical Classroom. Victoria is a composer and a conductor. Her work has been commissioned by organizations around the country and the world, including the Houston Symphony. She was the first woman awarded a doctorate in orchestral conducting from Juilliard. She has guest conducted throughout the world. Uh, We've had Victoria on, as I mentioned before, actually about a year and a month ago, apparently, I noticed, um, to talk about her opera, Mrs. President. It's an opera that's based on the true story of the first woman to run for president in the U.S., which actually took place in 1872. um, And in honor of the current presidential race, Victoria will be presenting scenes for Mrs. President on October 28th at the National Opera Center in New York. And even if you can't get to the event, you can see it live streamed online. We'll get to that more later. But first, Victoria, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. So so we've got a lot of ground to cover because in addition to briefly reminding people of uh, Mrs. President and the premise of that opera, we're going to talk about other operas and classical music pieces that have been based on true political events. So first, why don't you give people just a brief overview of Mrs. President? Mrs. President
1: takes place in 1872, and it has to do with Victoria Woodhull, who uh, ran for president before women even had the vote, and her nemesis, Henry Ward Beecher, who... Did everything in his power to uh, prevent her from becoming president. She actually spent election night in jail. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really fascinating that there are so many parallels with with today. She was reviled by the press. They called her Mrs. Satan. Mm -hmm. And things were pretty bad back uh, in those days.
0: And remind us of who Beecher was. Now, didn't Beecher actually run against her, as I recall?
1: No, no. She ran against Ulysses S. Grant in his second term. And by the way, her running mate was Frederick Douglass.
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah.
1: So she was way ahead of her time in many, many respects. She ran on the equal party ticket. And of course, since women couldn't vote, Uh uh, this was just basically an an exercise, I wouldn't say in futility, but because she used this bully pulpit to further her ideas and her agenda, which really was complete equality for women, which mm-hmm. was a Just a distant dream at that time. But Henry Ward Beecher was one of the most celebrated preachers of his day. His sister, Harriet Beecher Stowe, had written Uncle Tom's Cabin, Mm -hmm. and he was known for his liberal views. He was a supporter of women's rights. He was an abolitionist really was considered on the right hand of God, there was only one small flaw, and that was that he was having affairs with his female parishioners Mm -hmm. while, of course, he was married. So Victoria Woodhull knew about this, and she wanted his endorsement because he had all of the heavy politicos and uh, uh, moneyed people in his congregation, Uh and so an endorsement from Henry Ward Beecher would certainly have furthered her campaign and at first he was intrigued but then of, of course he realized this would be the ruin of his political career and then she brought out the bombshell that her newspaper had the story of his illicit affairs ready to print oh. and so that was that was the zinger so at first he capitulates because he doesn't want to completely ruin his career and then he has her mail the uh, article to somebody who requests it, and she gets slammed for sending obscenity through the mail and what? jailed for that.
0: Yes. She gets the obscenity, slammed of course, for was, obscenity.
1: Yeah. The, <laughs> the obscenity was the truth about Henry uh, Ward Beecher's Grace. private life.
0: Wow. And by
1: the way, it was the trial of the century. It was the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. Man. And he got off scot-free, and she went to jail.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I I think we should hear a little snippet, and then I'd like to talk briefly about some of the parallels uh, in this opera and true story and uh, what's been going on in uh, U.S. politics today. So would you introduce the piece we're going to hear?
1: Certainly. We're going to hear an aria called I'm Told I'm a Citizen, in which Victoria announces herself as the candidate and says, uh, I pay taxes, I should Should be considered a citizen. I already have, should have the right to vote because I am a citizen.
0: So this lady, Victoria Woodhull, was yes. a trailblazer before there was a trail to blaze, basically.
1: Before the word feminism <laughs> was even part of our vocabulary, Man, indeed.
0: That's crazy. So so we should talk a little bit because you're you know you're doing this event where you're going to be presenting scenes from Mrs. President at the National Opera Center. And you're doing it in honor of what's going on in U.S. politics right now. So
1: What's about to happen, yeah, right?
0: Yeah. So could you talk a little about some parallels in this story about Victoria Woodhull and what's happening now?
1: Well, indeed. uh, Without having to name names, uh, the fact that the other side referred to her as Mrs. Satan is actually something that was lobbied at Hillary. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Victoria Woodhull did spend election night in jail, I do remember a quote from the other side saying that this woman is crooked and she should be jailed. So, I mean, those are exact words. It's uh, really quite amazing how art Imitates history, imitates art, imitates (laughs) history. It's uh, you know, it's very very close. And this was, of course, in 1872, and here we are in 2016, and the same words.
0: Quite amazing. That is really amazing. So I think uh, we should move on to some other pieces because this opera belongs to sort of a proud tradition. I found in classical music and in opera, of of turning. True stories from history, political stories, into works of art. And um, one of the first ones that I think we're going to talk about is uh, Beethoven's Third Symphony.
1: Yes, the Eroica. Indeed, he was inspired by Napoleon Bonaparte when Bonaparte was the first consul. And he wrote this work in honor of Bonaparte. Uh But then when Bonaparte uh, crowned himself emperor, he was totally incensed. And uh, I wanted to give you his exact words, which are pretty amazing.
2: Uh
1: He said, so he is no more than a common mortal. Now he too will tread underfoot all the rights of man, indulge only his ambition. Now he will think himself superior to all men, become a tyrant. Beethoven um, seized the top of the title page, tore it in half and threw it on the floor. And... Yeah, pretty pretty strong stuff. So the fact that he crowned himself emperor and considered himself superior to others was to Beethoven complete anathema. And yeah. incidentally, Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio also concerns itself with a political prisoner. So Beethoven was involved from the get-go with the rights of man. He lived in a, a time when this was very much in the front of people's minds.
0: That kind of never occurred to me that Beethoven was a political person. <laughs> I don't know why. Yes, indeed. I don't know why that never occurred to me, but it just he just seems like such a, you know, we, we hold him in such esteem for his artistic accomplishments. never I never thought that he had uh, anything to say about politics.
1: Well, here's another interesting thing. You know, his patrons were all the wealth, wealthy aristocracy. And in the past, musicians had been kind of considered entertainers and servants, and they had to go in the, the servants' entrance, and Mozart and Haydn mm-hmm. were very much considered not equals of the aristocracy and nobility. Mm-hmm. And Beethoven smarted under this. He, he believed that all men were equal, mm-hmm. uh, which is why he felt that the precepts of the French Revolution were... Were things that really resonated with him. And so from the very beginning, when he was subjected to all of this kind of double standard, the haves and, and the have nots, and mm-hmm. the, the powerful and the not powerful, I think he smarted under this from the very beginning and fought against it.
0: Well, we should hear a little bit of the Third Symphony before we move on to our next historically based piece. Mm hmm. You know, it's funny. I don't, you know, I am definitely not a classical music expert, but every time I hear a piece by Beethoven, I just smile because it it sounds so Beethoveny. It just <laughs> it's so easy to pick out his his work.
1: And you know, if you think of the idea of he- heroism in the best sense of the word, um the the theme itself is so uplifting. The, mm. the you know, it just it it cries out
0: I was really surprised to find out how many classical music pieces in opera have been based in in true stories mm-hmm. about political events. And the, and the next one we've got here on the list is uh, Shostakovich's Seventh, which is also known as the Leningrad Symphony, which, as I understand it, was initially dedicated to the life and deeds of Vladimir Lenin. And And in much the same way that Beethoven changed the name of the Third Symphony— Shostakovich decided instead to dedicate the the symphony to the city of Leningrad. Yes,
1: and there's a theme in the first movement that was first known as the Stalin theme.
0: Oh. And if you
1: know anything about Shostakovich, his relationship with Stalin was a stormy and rocky one. Yeah, He was constantly in fear for his life. He had written an opera called Lady Macbeth of the Mitzinsk district. Mm-hmm. And Stalin said that this piece is garbage and basically was on – Uh, Shostakovich's case for the rest of his life and very, very tyrannical and dictatorial. So Shostakovich had to watch what he wrote and what he said. Fortunately, so much of music is abstract, which is not true of opera, as you know. You've got words there. So in the Seventh Symphony, he did a very clever thing. The, the theme of fascism, uh, the, the, the motive aso- that he associated with fascism, was first, uh, in his mind, associated with Stalin. Mm. But later, he said, Um, Oh, no, this is really an anti-Hitler theme. And uh, I think a a quote from him is uh, also very telling. He said, it's about fascism, but music, real music, is never literally tied to a theme. Fascism is not simply national socialism, and this is music about terror, slavery, and oppression of the spirit. Not only about fascism, but about our country and generally about all tyranny and totalitarianism yeah and that's what i think is so interesting is that you know you you, you can put specifics uh, of time and place on on this music but it really applies broadly mm-hmm. to uh, situations that are happening today
0: yeah apparently about 25 million soviet citizens lost their lives in world war ii that is just Staggering, a, an unfathomable number yeah and this is a, a testament to them Maybe it's just because I know the story behind this piece, but it strikes me as very Russian.
1: Yes, indeed. And also Shostakovich was able to use the quality of sarcasm uh-huh. in his music. So sometimes even the most heroic sounding sections have that little edge. Right. You know, where is this really what he means or is he making a parody? Right. It's like, we are happy workers
0: working. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like That's kind of exactly, what it sounds yeah. like he's Not writing Not so fast. Yeah. Wow, that's, man, he had such a complex relationship with this country. You know, yes, he did. As an artist. So, okay, uh, we've got to talk about John Adams' Nixon in China. So we actually, here in the Classical Classroom, we did a two-part episode about this opera with our guest uh, Michael Rimson. So this mm-hmm. is a, a minimalist opera written by John Adams about President Nixon's visit to China in 1972. And it actually premiered here in Houston, and so as I understand it, Nixon was – he sort of touted himself as this very anti-communist guy. But then he decided for tactical reasons kind of to, to make nice with China in order to yes. put pressure on the North Vietnamese to, to end the war in Vietnam. And so this opera is about that very tense visit <laughs> –
1: Yes, indeed. Within the opera, he has a performance of a of a Chinese opera within the opera itself, which yeah. is rather interesting.
0: Yeah, we should hear some of that. Is there a good part to? The, I mean, it's such a long opera. I mean, it, we rarely do two part episodes, so that yeah. Tells you a little well, Madame Mao,
1: I think oh, Madame yeah, Mao's yeah. aria is probably a, a a good place to to plug in.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Wondering is if you were inspired by this opera to write to write uh, Mrs. President.
1: No, actually, um, I was inspired by Carmen. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Georges Bizet's Carmen. Okay. And the reason the reason for that is because Carmen is a woman who values freedom above all. Mm. You know, opera h- history is full of women who are downtrodden, exploited, murdered. Is subjugated in some way, shape or form or sick or, you know, and here yeah. is Carmen. Here is this woman defiant, defiant. She will not be ruled by anyone, by any man. She is free and she lives free and she will die free and she's not going to be held down. I felt Victoria Woodhull was very much like Carmen.
0: Gotcha. That's, wow. Okay, cool. I thought, like, there was something that struck me about the way that Adams has the characters in Nixon and China- speak about themselves and the way that you mm-hmm. have the characters in your opera speak about themselves that i don't know they, they reminded me of each other
1: yeah well she is actually announcing herself as a candidate at that moment so she's uh, giving as a as it were a stump speech yeah and she has to tell there's, there's an audience there she yeah. uh, gave the speech at steinway hall and so she has to uh tell people who she is and what her plans are
0: gotcha Okay. So next on our list is Benjamin Britten. We've got actually a couple of pieces by Britton. Um, the Symphonia de Requiem and yes. his, uh, his War Requiem. Rec- that is hard to say. War Requiem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the Symphonia de Requiem. Yeah. I thought this was really funny that, that basically the, the Japanese government commissioned different composers to, to, to make pieces.
1: Benjamin Britten received a commission through the British consul uh, to write a work for a special festivity by an unspecified nation. Uh And Britten agreed to do it as long as it it didn't have to be jingoistic, which he never was. And he eventually learned that the requester was Japan – and they wanted to work to celebrate the 2,600th anniversary of the ruling dynasty. Yeah. And at this point, Japan was not involved in World War II. In World War II, this was 1939, so they were not part of the picture. So he had an agreement with the Japanese consul, discussed the work's nature, uh, the suitability for the occasion. And uh, they were fine with it. It was going to have things in Latin in it. It was going to be in three movements. And so he wrote it and didn't hear from them for a long time. <laughs> then he was summoned to the Japanese consulate where he was read a long letter by the person who served as organizer of the celebration, and, and this is so amazing. He accused Benjamin Britten of being insulting to a friendly power, of providing a Christian work where Christianity was apparently unacceptable, that the work was gloomy, and so on. (laughs) Um, We are afraid that the composer must have greatly misunderstood our desire. Uh The music has a melancholy tone, both in its melodic pattern and rhythm. I love it. This guy is criticizing Benjamin Britten's music. Making it unsuitable for performance on such an occasion as our national ceremony. So, um, so they
0: basically they brought him there to tell him in person, your music is too Catholic and too sad.
1: That's right. Yeah, <laughs> actually not Catholic because it, it's a Protestant nation, but, oh, but too but Christian. I thought,
0: I thought it was because he was using the stuff from the he, oh the, the Latin. Latin yes from yes the yes Catholic yes Requiem yeah uh-huh. um, yeah interesting indeed well, we, sh- we have to hear some of that absolutely. talk a little bit about yes, what's happening sure. in the music piece? I know this is a very particular form of, of classical music, the directly, Yes,
1: and and it's very serious and it's very dark, so you can see why the consulate thought the work gloomy. Yeah. But of course it's also very serious and, and powerful in tone. It's
0: interesting to me that Britain decided to use this form to talk about the 2600th anniversary of the japanese that's empire
1: <laughs> well you know he d- he d- uh, just knew it was a celebration he didn't know what country was uh, it was going to be used for when oh, he wrote okay. it okay so he it wasn't came making as some big sort of, surprise he wasn't yeah, making no, some no, sort he, of
0: commentary he was just like <laughs> this is what i feel like writing
1: <laughs> well that's it you know yeah. and you can imagine it was written in 1939 with the um, the war clouds looming, yeah. and of course World War One already of having ha- happened, uh-huh. um, this must have been on everybody's mind. Well, considering the works that we know that were written at that time, yeah. and so he had no idea that it was being written for Japan, let alone being written for a, a, you know a celebration of the two thousand six hundred anniversary of the dynasty. <laughs> I, I doubt if he would have taken the commission had he known that. Yeah. It just seems so you know completely. Antithetical, but then when he found out what it was, then he tried to, you know, say, Well, this is what I'm doing. I hope it's acceptable to you. Right. And of course they, you know, just said yes, and without realizing that this was going to be completely the opposite of what they thought it was going to be. By the way, this it, it, it has a happy ending because even though they never used it for the celebration and listening to the music, you can understand why. Yeah. Um, this is not a rah-rah-rah kind of piece. But he got paid his commission anyway.
0: Oh, hey, good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it has a happy ending as far as Britain <laughs> was concerned. And, and of course, it's been played, you know, thousands of times since then. And it's very successfully.
0: It's all about the paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, so we should also talk a little bit about Britain's War Requiem, which is, I know he wrote it in response to World War II.
1: yes. I believe that Britain drove a truck in World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Huh. He was very, very involved politically. He was a um, conscientious objector and uh, somebody who really had very strong emotions about uh, about the war, as did everyone in Britain, of course. Mm.
0: What's the significance of those chimes in the background? Ah,
1: the tolling of the bell. It's a requiem. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, uh, wow, that's (laughs) kind of a strange synchronicity that Britain wrote a requiem for the Japanese celebration prior to World War II, and then he wrote another requiem requiem, (laughs) about World War II, like, considering what happened with the Japanese in the war.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, which
0: is a great segue, by the way, uh, into talking about Christoph Penderecki's Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima. Yes. And and Trinity, that means a lament.
1: Yes, and the uh, amazing thing is that he uses a kind of a a cloud of sound. And I don't mean sound cloud like we put uh, Music, CDs up yeah. <laughs> on. But he uses literally a cluster of notes that give the sound of people screaming. It is huh. it is eerie. It is uh, a Wha- technique that he, he perfected.
0: So I, what I found interesting when I was reading up a bit about this piece was that this was actually originally called 8 Feet 37 Inches. This was the original name of the piece.
1: Right. Very abstract. Yeah.
0: And it was sort of this very conceptual piece. But then when Penderecki heard it performed, he said uh, his quote was, I was struck by the emotional charge of the work. I searched for associations. And in the end, I decided to dedicate it to the Hiroshima victims. And you're saying that's because it just it just works with that that motif.
1: It's amazing because when you hear the music you think this could not have been written for anything else. Yeah. And yet um there it was it was a piece of abstract music, you know, in search of a title.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I mean, that, wow. Well, wow, we we have to hear some now. Yes.
1: It's kind of an audible shock test, isn't it?
0: Wow, what a powerful like N- you soundscape. Hear the it doesn't even sound like music. It's just sort of Yeah. Oh, now yeah. we're going into something totally different. Oh, my God, this music is terrifying.
1: Isn't it? it yeah. It really It's really is. amazing. Yeah. Wow. Amazing that he was able to convey uh, a, an emotion that uh-huh. only later coalesced into right. uh, the meaning of the notes.
0: Huh. Oh. As I say,
1: it's an audible Rorschach test. Yeah,
0: definitely. <sighs> definitely. So so last but not least, I'm I'm just leaving that piece alone because it's really scary. I, ju- I feel like we should leave it behind. But (laughs) that was -hmm. was intense. Um, Yeah. But uh, so, last but not least, you also have written some other works that are based in real events from history. And I understand you've got a couple here today that you want to talk about. So where should we start with your
1: Uh, Well, it's actually going to be a CD uh, called Four Presidents. It's about four American presidents who I found particularly intriguing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first being George Washington because he was handed absolute power on a silver platter and he turned it down. Now, I dare say we can't find a politician today that would do that. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty Amazing. Pretty amazing. So um, he's the first. The second was Thomas Jefferson, who of course wrote the Declaration of Independence and words that are printed on our heart that all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And the the third was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Actually, this is a little out of chronological order, but ah. the third one that I wrote was Franklin Delano Roosevelt because he was such a, a, a strong force during one of our darkest periods in history. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Theodore Roosevelt is the last one. And each one of these pieces has a narrator And it also has a solo instrument that is associated with the period. For example, with George Washington, the solo instrument is the flute and the music is based on fife and drum tunes from the revolutionary era. Mm -hmm. With Thomas Jefferson, the solo instrument is the violin because Thomas Jefferson himself played the violin and Ah. evidently played it very well. And the piece is based on a violin work that was actually in his library, a work of Corelli. Mm -hmm. The third, um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is a clarinet concerto and it is based on big band music of the 1940s, Uh a la Benny Goodman. And then the last one, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt, is a trumpet concerto. And um, even though Theodore Roosevelt didn't play the trumpet, I think if he played any instrument, he would have played the trumpet. It just seems to embody his um, exuberant He definitely seems like a brass guy. For yes, sure. exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. Uh,
0: which one should we hear a sample from?
1: I think let's listen to Soul of a Nation. This is the work about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Okay.
2: Wistful notes from his violin filled the room, while outside the driven snow pelted Monticello's parlor windows. But storms no longer touched Thomas Jefferson. In a rumbled brown coat, too short for his tall frame, a red waistcoat, corduroy breeches, and old slippers down at the heels.
0: His before the his home, his home So interesting. The narration instead of instead of any uh, vocal music. I like yes, that. having That's a narrator. Well, you know, yeah.
1: um from for that for that idea I was inspired by a Lincoln portrait of Aaron oh. Copeland. Uh, where he uses Lincoln's words and he has a narrator reading them because, you know, when you have something that is full of text, to have somebody speaking it uh, makes it much more understandable Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. to have someone singing it. Very often, even though we may love the voices, it's the reason that there are super titles in most opera performances today is that it's sometimes difficult to understand the text. Yeah. And most librettos are most successful when they don't use a lot of text, when they're, mm-hmm. um, when the story uh, leaves enough room for the music and you don't have a great deal of text. But mm-hmm. in these cases, the text was really important because in each of the uh, presidents, we actually used their words.
0: And this is all from a CD that is going to be coming out when...
1: The CD will be certainly in 2017.
0: And you should also uh, tell people where to find information about the upcoming event in New York City.
1: Yes, indeed. This is uh, happening on October 28th at 8 o'clock at the National Opera Center, which is uh, 330 7th Avenue in New York City. But for those of you who can't make it in person, it is going to be live streamed, I'm happy to say. Uh, just go to operaamerica.org, and um, you can hear and see the performers.
0: Very cool. Well, Victoria Bonn, it has been great to talk to you again. Thanks for uh, giving this us this really quick and dirty overview of (laughs) classical music and opera history or sorry historically related pieces well my pleasure and it's great to be back on the show again All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. Follow our social media links, all conveniently gathered in one spot for you there. Email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to, rate us, and review us on iTunes because it's the patriotic thing to do. Thanks to audio producer Todd Electoddle College, Hulslander, for his audio expertise today. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing presidential eyes. Thanks to Victoria Bond for being here. Meow to engineer Dan Powell at the Studios of the Radio Foundation in New York. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. And go vote! All right, we'll catch you next time.